Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the GameDev.TV Community Podcast. I'm your host KB, and this podcast brings you the audio experience of GameDev.TV. Now, let's get right into the podcast. Yeah, sure. So this is Corey and Andrew. Uh, we're the Tracy Brothers of the Tracy Brothers Games. Uh, I'm Corey, and you'll hear from Andrew a little later. We are... Uh, a small indie studio that makes games for gamers. We really focus on, you know, replayability and listening to our customers. So we've had, I think, eight or nine releases in the nine years we've been been uh, functional as a studio. We started with mobile games, and now we make Steam games and eventually port those to Android and iOS. Uh, our most recent release was Star Traders Frontiers, which is available on Steam and uh, and mobile phones and tablets. But right now we're working on our next title, uh, Cyber Knights, and we're planning on taking it to Kickstarter in February of 2020. When do you think the game will come out? <laughs> Don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we've been we're uh, in production of the game right now so we're um we are have come out of pre-production design and we're in the process of working on it it's a big one for us it's a big change um a lot of new elements in the game uh so hard to say we hope to have kickstarter backers playing it in 2020 okay because right. i want to play it right now let's go <laughs> so our process is um really built around our community the one thing that's really important for Star Traders and the games before it, and I think will be equally important for Cyber Knights, is that we do a private alpha with our backers and with our community, and we iron out as many of the bugs and kinks uh, and design flaws as we can before it goes to Steam. So we really do a collaborative effort with the alpha where the people who are backing the game are playing it before it's for sale, and they're really helping us figure out what's working, what's not. Um, so we're not a huge company. Uh, you know, we don't have a team of 100 people to work on the game. But we do have some really great backers and members of our community that love games and are as passionate about games as we are. And we really, uh, we're really excited to start the process there. So like Andrew said, we think people will be playing it in 2020. Will it be for sale? Maybe, maybe not. But we know that our first step is always to get the game in the hands of uh, our backers so we can figure out what it's really going to be like when it's done. And so can we go into more detail? What, what exactly is Cyber Knights? It's a, uh, Cyber Knights is a turn-based tactics uh, squad game. So you are the leader of a group of soldiers of fortune in a uh, cyberpunk futuristic city set in two two three one. So pretty far in the future, um, and in a kind of classic style, you are working for the highest bidder as you and your kind of closest friends try to uh, find a way to fight your way out of the situation that you were all born into. I guess so. There's a lot of kind of uh, risk it all, you know, um, live fast, die young kind of flair in there. And you've got a group of people who are, have put it all on the line to follow you into the heat of these really dangerous high pr pressure contracts, you know, breaking into corporate labs, um, kidnapping scientists, all sorts of things, whatever the highest bidder wants you to do. 
Um, so but at a game level, it's a turn-based tactics RPG with a big story and a lot of different missions and ways to go about things from hacking to stealth to fighting. What was the brainstorming session like before coming up with this game? Well, uh, it really started with us talking about what kind of story we wanted to be able to tell. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of, you know, a lot of our games are built around these these big narratives and then how you navigate this bigger structural story in the world. So Star Traders Frontiers has this sweeping arc about the reformation of the, the Galactic Empire and the formation of a new governing body and these um, terrorist, uh, you know, risks terrorist threats to the to the stability of the galaxy but your character is sort of going along and you get to decide how much you want to risk and how you want to get involved and that's really where we started with star traders frontiers with that story so we went back to the same process for cyber knights and talked about the big story we wanted to tell and then figured out where we wanted to situate the player in that overall narrative so i think it's an exciting revisit of the of the cyberpunk of the cyber knights storyline the cyber knights world but it really remains focused on giving the player a great a great tale a great narrative to latch onto and to take their their characters on a unique path through it so it's not necessarily like you know a linear game but the story is something that underpins a lot of uh the design Awesome. How, how did you get started in game development? Well, Andrew and I have been making games since we were little kids, uh, since we were like just elementary school kids. Uh, not video games. We first made like board games and role-playing games, and we knew we always wanted to make games. Back when we were like cutting out little cardboard dudes and writing orc spearmen on them or whatever. Um, so we always loved making up games and playing games, and we had an opportunity. Um, when Google Play was really new, uh, based on, we put together a little start, uh, the first version of Star Traders and put it out on Google Play. And we got really good feedback and we felt like we had an opportunity to make another game, see what people thought of that. And it sort of spiraled out of control from there. It was just kind of a interesting hobby for a little while. And then uh, we did our first Kickstarter and got you know, got increasingly serious about it. Are you full-time game development now? We are, yes. We are both full-time, and we've been full-time for like six or seven years now, so. Good for you. Yeah, it's been really, I feel like it's been a blessing. We've been really lucky. Oh, that's awesome, guys. Yeah. And you said you started, what, like six, seven, or was it nine years ago, the studio? Our first game was nine years ago, and we got, like, our first Kickstarter, I think, was six years ago, and we got really serious. And how many are in the studio? Just you two, or is there anyone else? Uh, core game design and uh, coding, it's just the two of us, but, and when we started nine years ago, we just, the two of us did absolutely everything, so we were kind of in that indie mode where, um, you know, we did art and the only, I think the only thing we weren't doing nine years ago was the music. We were buying non-exclusive tracks. So but over the years, we've uh, been able to bring on extra specialists to help us with different parts of the game. So we have people doing 
concept art and 3D modeling for us. We've found a, a composer we've worked with in the last games, and we have people helping us with marketing. So we're a pretty small um, core team, but we have a lot of help, thankfully. For a, a short moment, we had my or our younger brother, Martin, on the team. So we were like three Tracy brothers, which was pretty yeah. cool. But, uh, three Musketeers? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Has the Kickstarter model worked out well for you? Yes, I would really say that we have really enjoyed our Kickstarters. It fits the way that we think about community really well. Um, we're looking, we have always been really engaged with the community. We're, and I know a lot of people say that, but I think we really think about that a little bit differently than other people. I spend probably too much of my time every day on Steam posting. I read every thread. I respond to almost every thread. And we're constantly in Discord hanging out with people. So in that regards, Kickstarter has been a huge vehicle to bring us together with the community more than just in balance and suggestion forums and you know, kind of working through the game in a forum fashion, but has helped a lot of people join the team creatively and, and kind of put more into the world and encourage them to really become a long-term part of our story. So we're super excited to do that a third time on Kickstarter. A big part of our, our uh, reward set is all about joining the team early, giving early feedback, helping create characters in the world, create a villain in the world, write a mission in the world, and really you know, doing this with our community. Nice. You know, our Kickstarters haven't raised huge amounts of money but they've built a really important part of what is Tracy Brothers today, which is that core of Kickstarter backers and people that have helped us build these games. So I think, you know, looking at Kickstarter strictly as a monetary success or failure uh, doesn't really fit the way we operate. I think we look at Kickstarter as a way to get some pre-orders and a way to get people to really buy into the game, you know, sure. So I think when you guys tweeted it, or I found it somewhere, which says success made by small actions taken every day. How did you guys stay motivated throughout these years? You know, uh, we were talking a little before the call. You know, we we have making games is a hell of a gig. It's so much fun, um, but it can be tough, and especially you know, given there's a lot of work to do, and sometimes it'll be years between. Uh, putting out a game and community can be hard on you at times. So uh, I think, honestly, actually, Corey and I have leaned a lot on our background as software developers. Both of us came from um, software, enterprise software development before uh, coming into game dev, before transitioning. So we learned a lot of things about project management and how to keep a project on uh, track and how to plan long-term and short-term planning. So we brought a lot of those, even though it's just the two of us, we brought a lot of those tools and processes into how we do our week-to-week, -week, which kind of, even if you have a, a kind of a demotivating day, you've still got deadlines and things to get after and, and a long task list for the week and somebody that you've got to kind of check in with and report to at the end of the week. So that's always kind of helped us you know, nip at our heels and keep us going. And then we honestly just get so much positive input from the community that if you're having a down day or something, you can generally find somebody talking about strategy or how to hunt Xeno or 
you know, what's the greatest grenade launcher build or whatever it is. And you can kind of, you know, you can really connect with somebody out there who's enjoying your game or you, instead of getting an email about a feature somebody wants, you get an email about somebody who had an experience with this or that system and it really helped them through a hard time or something. So I think both the just day-to-day processes, but then we have a lot of people we talk to every day who kind of, we have gamers who are on our Discord. I've talked to them probably daily for nine years. It's crazy. So a lot of these guys are our friends too now. That's awesome. You just build a family around them. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Tracy Brothers. There you go. What is one of your mistakes as a game developer and how did you overcome it? Well, uh, let's see. Trying to think of a big one. I can think of a lot of little ones. We try to keep our mistakes small by um, building in a process that makes sure that we get our work out early in front of people. So, you know, if we have a stumble, I can think in Star Traders, it's a game about a spaceship that you have to manage, you're the captain. So at the beginning of Star Traders, when we first were putting it out into the Alpha, there was a system in place where you had to decide for every individual crew member if they were currently um, working on a station, like working on the bridge or in the engine room, or if they were patrolling the ship. And you had to pick that all the time. And it was kind of something you had to go in and, and micromanage. And players really... We try to explain it. We try to tell them why it was so cool. We try to. Mm. It was such a disaster. <laughs> it was I really terrible. liked the idea. It was, I, sounded cool. Yeah. It, it sounded, sounded awesome. Great. Yeah. Then, yeah. And it was such a nightmare. And it had it came with all these special rules. It wasn't just that you were doing it because it was fun, but it had all these impacts on what happens if an enemy boards your ship. Who's on patrol and who's working on on a at a station is such an important anyway. It was a disaster. And we fought about it for about a week with the community, kind of going back, trying to convince them that it was really cool. And uh, we had just ripped it all out, thankfully. But that's kind of, I think, an example of how you want to fail well, mm-hmm. that you fail early, you recognize the fail, fail small, and yeah. you try to fix it. Where I think, you know, sometimes if you, I think it's just a general advice to people doing game devs share what you're doing, show it to people early don't work on it for two years and then release this game about managing who's working on station and who's, you know, patrolling and everybody's like, what is this terrible thing that you've made? So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the ones that always sticks with me because it's so funny. They, the reaction was instantaneously, uh, this is terrible. Oh man. I bet that was crazy. Like what? They don't get it. Yeah, no, we really typed a lot of we typed a lot of words to try to convince people that it was really cool. But um, you know, and it's it's a tough it's a tough line to walk right there as a game developer. Of well, this is a really good idea. We're sure it's a good idea. They just you know it's just the alpha. Do they not get it? Like why aren't they getting it? And you have to figure out because sometimes you're right and it is fun and you just have to change the way people see it in the interface or change the graphics. You've missed you know, people are like I hate this. And you're like, well, if I turn it upside down, then they're like, oh, I love it. You know, and sometimes you're actually just wrong. It's not fun and you need to like destroy it before it hurts anyone. And and making that decision as a game developer is something that uh, is very hard to do without player feedback. But. Players will keep you honest, like Andrew said. You, if you show it to people and they play it, they're going to tell you if it's fun or not. 
uh, and you can try and fix it, and they might look at it and go, it's still not fun. And then you need to start thinking, maybe this is a dumb idea, you know. And that can be really hard if it's like, because that was my idea, the ship thing, and I really liked it, and I played the, before we launched it, I was moving people around, and I felt like it was great. Uh, but I was wrong. It wasn't great. People didn't like it. So that can be tough. And that's a little game game development thing. We've also made some some business mistakes. Um, you know, sometimes we've gone uh, with partners that we didn't uh, vet carefully enough. So I think there's, you know, mistakes that you can make. Game development's right. It's a two-headed beast. You're making games. It's very creative. But you're also running a regular business. So you can screw up on either side. Uh, we've thankfully survived all of our mistakes so far. Um, but I think, you know, it goes back to that little actions every day. You can mess up little actions as long as you correct them with more little actions later. It's when you make, when you make those mistakes and you let them just go and you don't, you know, you don't figure out what's wrong. You don't fix it. Uh, then a little mistake can snowball into a big mistake and that can really kill you. So. Yeah, but you'll never know unless you try and then uh, you can yep. always bounce back from mistakes. But yeah, absolutely. So like our, C- our CEO, Ben, he always tells students, you know, if you want to make a game, make a small game, release it, get feedback on it, make the next game, the next game. You can do better by making a bunch of small games and making one game taking you forever and then waiting until you release it to get feedback. And you're like, oh, no, like, it's supposed to yeah, be perfect. That's absolutely awesome. yeah. agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really important concept, I think. Yeah. people. Too many people are thinking about the unicorn game. They make one, and it'll go so crazy, and everybody will buy it, and I'll be... I'll never need to make another game or whatever, but it's yeah. it's a, it's a such a small percentage, so you'd be better off making... And you learn so much every time. I think, you know, we're on our ninth game now. Every game we have learned so many things. So it's such right. a it's such a beneficial process just to do it... You know, I think they all, you know, you also, even just coding um, tutorials and stuff on how to re- make games have the same advice built into them. You know, make Tetris, but don't just make the front, the like, just the play loop. Like, make the main menu and put in some sound effects and make a victory screen and, like, really make Tetris so you know all the stuff that needs to be in to make mm-hmm. an actual game. So, not only make it, but make it your own. Change yeah. it up a little bit. Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing you'll see. Well, continue, Brent. What was your first game, and how long did it take you to make it? You probably said the first game, I just forget. <laughs> yes, Star Traders was the very first game we make. So we, we've come back around to that now and kind of made a spiritual successor called Star Traders Frontiers uh, a couple of years ago. Star Traders RPG was our very first game. And I think we actually started um, really with that make small games and release them. I think, Corey, correct me if I'm wrong, but Star Traders might have taken three months or something before yep. we hit, we were giving it to players. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was the Star Traders RPG. Sorry, I'm just yeah. looking at them, so I'm just kind of curious. To kind yeah, of... yeah. I mean, that one is a, a very text-heavy, uh, Android-only game, phone game. Um, yeah. But you know, we really, I think, I don't know if the builds got out to customers, Corey, where like you couldn't buy fuel and it was just a survival. You know, you were doomed for the moment you took off. But you know, it went out completely playable like fun with a play loop in the middle but with you know years of work ahead of it to turn it into what it is today i think so we did that with our first couple of games we were really really um 
went really, really fast to getting it into players' hands. Cyber Knights was our second game, and I think it probably took us a similar, you know, three or four months before we had we put it into out for free for people to play it. So that's changed over the years as we've gotten more refined and care more about polish and our games cost a lot more to make, but um, it is a it's a really strong place to start. And Google Play has changed. You know, the markets have changed a lot. Like when we put those games out, there weren't very many games on Android. Uh, right. So it was a lot easier to get attention with a half-finished game. And that was also back when Google Play didn't have the early access system that they have today. They didn't have the beta testing system they have today. So I think doing it today, again, we would do things a little differently, but the idea would still be the same. Make the game, make the minimum fun game that you can and get it into players' hands and then start iterating, start improving it. Mm -hmm. That's really important because you could be thinking the one thing is like the most fun, this is what's going to sell it, and it's not, it's something else. And then instead of spending time on what you thought it was going to be right, you can now spend time on what everyone else wants to be right. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, another core of his saying is, you know, you're running a business, you're writing a game, and you also have to find a market. So it's a, it's a tough thing because you could still make a really, even if that minimum game you made was a ton of fun, if it just doesn't get the attention it needs, you know, you may, you know, there's a lot of things to do. So it gives you to not sink too much time into it gives you more chances to pick up and go again or have more time to market it, I guess. Yeah. What well, engine do you guys build your games in? Cheater. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, uh, we've used a variety of engines. Like our early games, we built our own engines from scratch. That was, you know, a lot of work. Learned a lot. Might not recommend doing that. Um, we've also used Cocos 2DX, which is a C++ engine. Uh, and we're using Unity now. Uh, so we've kind of tried a couple of different things. We really like Unity. Uh, we really like Cocos. Cocos is uh, free, free, like cost nothing open source. So very, very low cost of ownership for Cocos 2DX. Um, I think it's one of the things that's really improved over the last 10 years for generally for game developers. The cost of engines has come down tremendously. The cost of access to services like composers and art houses has come down tremendously. Um, so I think it's a really exciting time to be a game developer, us or anybody else in the indie space because there's just so much out there. When we started, Unreal was, you know, almost six figures to get a license. You know, it was very expensive to get an Unreal 3 or an Unreal 4 license. Unity was a lot more expensive than it is today. So today, there's just so much more um, opportunity for game developers out there. You can get on Steam. When we started, you had to go through Greenlight or be a major publisher to get on Steam. So... Today things are really a lot more available than they were when we started. I think the, you know, the engine question is a lot easier to answer now, or maybe a little harder. You know, depends on what perspective you take. But it's different than when we started. Yeah. How Stoke is the Steam process to get on Steam? I mean, they probably take you a little easier now that you're an established studio. But how were they when you first went on? 
Well, we oh. joined Steam during Greenlight. Sorry, Corey, you want to go for it? No, no, go ahead. You you spearheaded the green the green light yeah. effort, so yeah. Um, we joined Steam during a green light during the green light era. We actually all of our games um, passed through green light. Even Star Trek Frontiers was pushed through green light at the very very end of it. So, um, you know, it was, I think a lot's been said about it, and I think there's some really good reasons that it's in the past, but it was pretty opaque. You really didn't ever know, um, you know, who they were going to pick, why they were picking people. There were like hundreds of games in green light, and they'd be like, "These are the ones we picked this month," and you just sort of hold your breath and hope you have enough votes to to pop through. Um, thankfully, once we, you know, we're always big on relationships and partners. So I would say, you know, in any any relationship you have in a business, be it with your composer or your art team or your your markets, the markets that you're selling through, you want to try to make you know, make connections and and uh, strengthen those connections over time. So we had a good first game got through through Greenlight, and we were able to um, kind of get some additional help, not uh, like just more visibility, I guess you could say, in how our other games were doing in Greenlight. And um, now, as you said, we're the green light's gone, and we've had some pretty successful Steam games made their early access. Uh, I don't remember what that list was called, best early access of the year or something. So now we have definitely can just bring games on. But um, yeah. I would say it's it's an for me the lesson learned there was to kind of make a connection early and and to be to keep in touch and keep people posted on what you're doing and how things are going and what help you might need. We were able to ask some, you know, ask some questions about how our second, third titles were doing in Greenlight, and get some some good insight about things we could do to um, improve our chances of getting through quickly. Can you go into detail how to publish on Steam, or how you guys publish? You know, it's all pretty easy these days. Um, you have to, of course, you have to be a business and you have to sign some paperwork with them. Um, and then per game, you've got to pay a fee. Pretty, I believe it's hundred dollars right now, so it's quite low. Yeah, it's a hundred bucks. Um, hundred bucks to get a, any game, given game on Steam. Um, and then they just have a big. I, I think any if you've. Um, mucked with any kind of game market website it'll look really familiar there's a big website you en you enter a title for your game and then there's a checklist that you have to work your way through and you're you're pretty much responsible for getting it all right so there's a lot of documentation and you can test it in a steam client so you can download your game and try it out on all the different platforms um, Corey does all the technical work i i'm not doing any of that stuff so he's got you know We've set up an automated pipeline to do all of our builds for Steam and for the different uh, mobile platforms. So that at the end of the day, we're just kind of uploading, using their SDK to upload a zip of the game and everything's been configured so a player can install it and click, click play. Is there something else I can answer about that? It's a, it's a, it's a lot of web forms and it's a lot of clicking, <laughs> to be honest. You can even go into how to sequence your actions in Valve's marketplace for maximum revenue. Hmm. Yeah, um, I talk about this a bit on Twitter. Uh, you know, trying to get your your Steam titles to perform is is uh, a, a process you will figure out as you go. Um, but there are some things that work for everyone. Um, 
Steam really likes newness. So uh, the times that your game's actually releasing are your biggest opportunities to make revenue. So the day you come out in early access, the day you leave early access, and your first couple of big sales are going to be your best chances to get your launch revenue up. But after that, it's a combination of timing sales on your game, right? So Steam and all the other markets, they're on to us. They don't want us to be on sale all the time. So they're going to let you have a sale after a certain amount of time since your last sale. And you want to pick sale dates uh, that let you, like say there's a sale in the springtime and there's a sale in the summer. You want to have a game sale somewhere between those two sales. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you know, if you're too close to the summer sale, you'll be really sad because then you won't be on the summer sale. So you want to make sure that you sequence your sales so that they line up with the big Steam sales. And then you want to make sure that when you go on sale, you're giving your players something new. So what you really want is Steam to put you on the front page or as high up on the lists of games as, as you can get, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways to do that is have a bunch of people that used to play your game come back and play your game this week. So you're on sale, and you get all the people who used to come, used to play to come back and check it out. So you do whatever's right for your game. For us, it's new content, new spaceships, new guns. You know, maybe for another game, it's new levels or new weapons or a new hat that all the people can wear. Whatever it is, you want to add something to your game that gets all the people to come back and play it again. Because then you've got it, it's on sale, people are playing the game, and then you can use something in Steam called a, a visibility round, right, Andrew? That's what it's called? Yep. yep. Visibility round. And that'll boost you up a little bit more. So one of the things that we often recommend to developers is trying to stack your buffs, right? If you're playing a role-playing game and you've got three buffs you can use, the best is usually to put all three of them on the same person and really maximize the impact of your buffs. So we think about that same way with Steam is stack your buffs. You've got a sale buff. You've got this visibility round buff. You've got the update buff. So use them all at the same time and use them in a way that they don't make you ineligible for summer sale because summer sale is also really important. Wow, those so, are great tips. The other One other thing I would say um, about Steam is that it has a great wishlisting system. Um, so on top of the stacking the buffs is a killer, absolutely like critical thing to do. And one of the things it does was help you flush your wish list. So people who are, are you know, if you have 10,000 people on your wish list and you, you have the sale event, they're all going to get an email saying that you're on sale and then yep. they're going to come look and they're going to see you did a new big content expansion and then they're going to have to get involved. They're not going to be able to, you know, prevent themselves from buying in. So. Steam actually publishes numbers about wishlist conversion. Um, you know, it's above 15% or it's like around 14% or something as the average on Steam. So uh, you really want to get people wishlisting your game. And a lot of times that can mean put your game early, put up a page, you can put up a page before you launch. So you can put up your marketing page, your screenshots, your video, all your text, like open the community forum for people to start talking and asking questions. So if you put that up, I would say make sure you're present to represent yourself there and answer questions. But 
it gives people a place to start basically pre-ordering. They may not convert, but they can get on your wish list and you hope that when you launch or you start early access or you do that first content expansion pack that you're going to start to reap those rewards. So it's a big, you know, a big part of being successful there is to build that wish list as high as you can, um, as successfully as you can. Oh, yeah. Awesome. It's going to help a lot of people, especially starting game developers, putting out their games. Yeah. Now I saw... working with your brother? For both of you, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, I would say that uh, we have been you know, brothers since as long as I've been alive. I'm the younger <laughs> one. Um, and that has been to our advantage. I think, you know, uh, we have a special connection as brothers that one of the things... I always think of is that we can get really mad at each other and we can always cool down after that. It's not, you know, there's, it's, we're brothers. So there's no breaking point here um, where it's just like, that's it. I can't ever work with this guy again. Um, so that's really helpful. And then since we've been doing this, as Corey said, like I can remember, you know, uh, games. I was in first grade. We were making paper role-playing games together. So we've been doing this together forever. So I think we have a bit of an intuitive connection about a lot of these things. And we we played. You know, I I followed Corey around when he was when I was younger and just played whatever games Corey was playing because he was the older brother. So he and I have a really shared common history and love of certain things in games. And I think all of that helps us. You know, you might end up. You know, you have definitely have to if you're working in a partnership on games with somebody else. You want to make sure that you guys, the two of you, or however many team members there are, are all going to enjoy making the games you're making together. You don't, you know, that motivational question that was up earlier. How do you stay motivated every day? Well, you've got to love what you're doing. So if you know you have team members on your game who desperately want to make first-person shooters, and you're making another uh, turn-based game. Uh, you know, you may have demotivation there because they don't love the game that they're working on. So, you know, I think for us, Corey and I have had a really long history of playing and loving and working on the same types of games, which helps us kind of zero in on, it's not like I want to make uh, Settlers of Catan and Corey wants to make Fortnite and we're, you know, pulling in different directions or something. Right. You never I know think you put, put those together. You <laughs> yeah, have it. <laughs> Fortnite of Catan. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's been really amazing um, for me to get to work with Andrew. It's been uh, something we've always wanted to do. Uh, we've always, you know, since we were kids, we had talked about, like, maybe we'll work together someday. And the opportunity to do it uh, with, you know, we're best friends and to get to be business partners is really a blessing. Um I think one of the things that's really spectacular about game development is it's an ever-changing field that seemingly you can never be good enough or too good at it. Um, and watching Andrew's skills grow over the years has been really cool. Um, to see the art go from where it was when we started to where it is today has just been uh, really amazing. Um, and it's always, it's always something new, right? I think that's one of the things that's really exciting about working in games is you know, there's always so many talented people making new games. There's new ideas all the time. It's like uh, just free innovation constantly with really, you know, the only bounds in games, technology and imagination. And there's a huge amount of both out there in the space. So I think getting to do it with 
Andrew and getting to see everything that's going on in the industry is really exciting, and I think we're really lucky to be able to do what we do. Can't go wrong having your best friend as your business partner. No. I mean, we fight like everybody else, but uh, we have a lot more fun, I think, than than we have uh, arguments. Good to hear. So before creating a studio, you guys quit your job, or was that one of you guys? What was that like? We both did. It was crazy. Uh, I would say it, was, it should have been a lot more frightening than it was. In retrospect, mm-hmm. I think I look back and I'm like, how did we ever think that was uh, a, you know, a well-advised decision? But we had a plan, um, and I think the most important thing that you have to do is you have to be realistic about what you think you can achieve and not risk too much, right? There's nothing wrong with... Uh, like what we did, you know, we worked weekends and nights on our games, and it was a it was a hobby side project to keep us entertained and keep us connected while we worked regular jobs. We both saved up money and we had a plan. Um, in retrospect, we took you know it's a big risk, uh, but it it worked out. I think the the key thing is that you have a good idea of how you're going to make it work, and it's not. You know, it's not based around you making the next Stardew Valley in six months. You know, I'm going to quit. You know, we never said I'm going to quit my job and we're going to have a huge hit next month and that's going to sustain us forever. You know, it was very much a plan of like, okay, we're going to quit. It's going to be lean for a while. We're going to have to grind out a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, And then at, at certain points, we'll check, like, we'll check to see if we're cooked. Like, do we have enough money to keep going? Okay, we do. We'll keep going, you know, mm-hmm. and if you don't, you got to know when, you know, because I talk to people who have ruined themselves financially trying to make games. You know, you take out a huge personal loan to buy a bunch mm-hmm. of assets. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, make the first game small. Don't buy assets. Yeah, you know, mortgage your house right. to buy MMO assets. Oh, like, man. Don't, don't make that. WoW. <laughs> don't yeah, try exactly. it. Don't like, make WoW. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. You know how many people want to make WoW? It's, yeah, I mean, uh, I wanted to make WoW once too. Like Andrew and I, when we were in our in high school, we had a terrific plan for an oh, MMO. It's gonna be amazing, gonna be dude. <laughs> Every blade of grass was gonna be managed. Oh, it was yeah, someday we'll, like, we'll do it. Yeah, someday we will, man. Oh, and man. when we start, we'll probably have an actual idea what it's gonna cost us. Back then, <laughs> yeah. we were like, we'll just get a server and some graphics, and like you know, so a little bit. A little bit of net code, and the players will build all the content for us. And you know, you got to be realistic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's key. I think a lot of people, you know, they think it might work out, but it's like you can go and work hard as you all you want. But if you don't have a plan, you're not gonna get anywhere. And you have to have a backup plan too. Be like, hey, this doesn't work out. We'll just we'll do this. And if it works out, cool. Keep moving forward. Stuff like that. Yeah. Now, what tricks or habits do you have that help you be a better game developer? For me, the number one is sort of simple, but it's playing the crap out of your game. That's one of the big habits that I think Andrew and I have that's paid off. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to Andrew saying loving your game, but Star Traders, I've played over 3,000 hours of that game, like on Steam, which is, if you look through your Steam library, the games that have 3,000 hours, you have played, you've played a lot of that game. Oh, yeah. Um, and I know there's a lot of people who have played it, maybe even as much or more than me as as not developers, people with a deep love of the game or whatever. But that's the kind of 
thing that I suggest developers need to be willing to do with the game they're making. Like, if you don't love match three games to the point where you play them all night long, that might not be the right game for you to be working on, right? And I don't know how to tell people making hyper-casual games, you know, how to get involved. I don't I don't have good advice for people making hyper-casual games, I guess. But if you're making a core game, you're making a shooter or a RPG or a strategy game or something, those games, you need to love them to make them really good. Like, you need to be able to play, to play them until, you know, a normal person would be bored and would not want to play it anymore because you're going to have so much testing and you're going to need to play it all these different ways. Um, so I think that's a big habit for mm-hmm. us is being willing to play your own game. Um, and, you know, the, one of the tricks is being able to squint at a game and play it with new eyes. Like, okay, I'm going to try really hard to pretend I don't know anything about this game and I'm going to play it again. Or I'm going to read somebody's feedback and I'm going to filter it through my mind like I've never played this game. What are they actually, you know, what are they seeing when they play the game? So being really familiar with your game. Andrew, what are your tips and tricks? Do you have any ideas, habits? Well, I do think playing it a lot, I think there's an embedded message in there that if you play it a lot, if you play it, especially when you're developing it, you're going to, you are your first player. So look for the places where it's not fun and figure out, you know, there, it, there is a message in there that if you play it 100 hours and you're really sick of X, Y, and Z system, that patrol and station systems killing you after 100 hours, you know, maybe you find out your own on yourself that you really have to have to change that. Um, I think the other thing for me, I think this is probably just more because of Corey and I's background, I do a lot of the story writing um, for the games. And I always think back to the way that the styles and the, the tips and tricks that Corey and I used to make pen and paper RPG storylines, um, where you think, you know, you're trying to avoid railroading the characters into a single uh, storyline so you think about the bigger context of the world without thinking about what the characters are doing and you kind of set the bigger scene and then you go and look at where what are they what are the characters how do they fit into this bigger thing so i think we take a lot of you know you can there's a lot of uh kind of a D resurgence these days and you can get a lot of advice about how to be a good game master or watch critical role or you know investigate other people that are doing that or maybe you just have a background in that yourself if you're making an rpg game i think it's one of the best resources um to think back on that if you did that yourself or go experiment with it yourself and find kind of the freedom that you can find there it's a really empowering way to think about stories um, and how to write them so i think for us you know stories have always been a big part of our games and having that background has been really really helpful thing to lean on i for heroes of steel for example i actually ran a campaign um, with local friends who didn't know anything about the video game but i was in the middle of writing the heroes of steel video game story and i wanted I was looking for some extra inspiration or different angles to see the story from. So I ran a version of the story um, over as like a 14 month campaign with friends meeting once a week. And it was really impactful in terms of, you know, where everything went and the ways I was able to see different things. So if you're making RPGs, like Corey said, if you're making a puzzle game, you, I would suggest you ignore my advice. But if you're making, uh, you know, if you're making a core RPG game or you're working on the story of a game, you're trying to tell a compelling story, 
um, look at some of those mediums that are that aren't digital and how people have um, really mastered that. There's so much advice and help out there, and because that that really translates very well to strong stories and games. Now, is a process like writing the story for games? Do you make like a script? Do you just write out the whole entire story and then? bring it down into a game type format i think there's a, a couple of different angles you need to come at it from one is the game um to really have to understand your verbs i think is a really critical thing and to understand what you can express in the game so it's important you know what if you're gonna write a story you want to make sure it's like silly examples but like heroes of steel is a tactical combat game so most of the time you're going to be like killing some stuff you're going to fight the bad guys you're going to fight the monsters you're going to travel across the world um you can find loot blah 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 but so we would want to make sure that the story we write is like compatible to that now in cyberpunk or something that kind of world like hacking a computer will be a thing so it's okay that we can have storylines that are more in depth with computers but we got to realize that the hacking system will have some limits there's certain things you will be able to do it's not like the internet is today so we want to make sure that the story fits within what you can really express within the game i think that's a big part of it on one end you want to not like dream so big that you get there and be like oh man we have no graphics that can tell this story in a way that allows the player to do choices like it's okay to have cinematics for everything but you really want if it's a story about a computer virus you want the player to be able to like take action in ways that change the story about the computer virus and the other side i think i always try to from so that's sort of like really looking at your gameplay and thinking about how it needs to shape the story and then i think from the other direction you'd want to look from the top and look at the world and think about I always try to tell people to think about the, the the story of the world without the characters. So it's really easy to just sort of start be like, oh, you're a character and you're going to do this and then you're going to do that and then you're going to do this. And it's how you get to sort of like linear, overly character focused stories. So try not to put the character into the world. I always would say, like, think about what's going on in the bigger picture of the world without the characters and f and write a bit about it and find the friction points where are the interesting thing happening where are the where are the big storm clouds brewing and then once you've kind of got that idea then you like to look and see where if we had a if we stuck the characters right in the middle of this mess then what are they going to have to do what choices are they going to have to make can they save it can they save themselves Will they, you know lose friends etc so as opposed to trying to just say hey you're a you're a, a mercenary in a cyberpunk world what's your first thing look above them and then place them afterwards i don't know it was a long-winded <laughs> my theory on how to write stories how much no, that theory, great. Uh, makes it dependent paper before it even gets coded oh everything everything um, before it gets typed in it we use a lot of like google docs and other sure. um collaboration software like that so i would say um even you know digital data entry is really fast but it still has a ton of limits so i would say uh, everything related to stories i do ends up in a, like a notebook of graph paper before it makes it onto a computer you just have so much freedom to draw arrows and write in notes and just right. uh, just really freeform something i don't have a whiteboard in my house or maybe that would be a way to do it i like the paper because it 
actually you end up with reams of notes that are from old, you know older revisions of what you thought you were going to do and you can go back and look at them and they can be really valuable so sure. for sure it's it's a really kind of a free a more freeing way to go about it i would say yeah i think a lot of people like to just sit down and think they're going to start coding right away yeah yeah seems like that's kind of a mistake at the same time depending on what you're building yeah i think for stories um it, it is a mistake and you you want like i think even if you're just gonna write dialogue um you want to spend enough time up front to really know a bit about that character try out a couple right. lines of dialogue think about what sort of situations you're going to want to see them in are they going to be in a situation where they're at a standoff and their best friend's life is on the line and they're going to have to make the choice you save them or you know hand over the the chest or don't and let them get killed and what kind of things might they say i don't know so i think there's a lot a lot to be said for just free forming it i know corey does the same thing with game design he's got reams of i think corey likes three by five cards so there's so much you know just real freedom in paper and as soon as you start typing something it gets a little more it just hasn't caught up in expressiveness yet the ease of use all right so um cory for the game design how long does it take you to make the levels and what's the process like well uh they always take like i'd say five times as long as i think they should so <laughs> roughly you know think up how long i think it's gonna take say it's a week and then i'll tell andrew it'll be a week and he probably writes down like one to ten weeks estimated time you know levels uh in particular, depend a lot on how close you are to the original idea. Like, did did the original idea survive the first round of testing? A lot of times it doesn't. I think that's where it it can really get away from. Um, but the design is a lot of uh, initial stuff on paper, working out you know uh, flows, sort of flow charts on paper. Uh, but we end up doing a lot of the mathematical design in simple tools like Excel. Uh, you can do a lot yep. with Excel if you just if you just want to figure out like some hit charts and some equations, and you want to see a bunch of different variations of the same thing. You know, what would it look like with this range of values, or what would it look like with this range of math? Excel lets you do all that stuff really fast, and you can just like. You know, we do this with combat systems a lot, where we just have a tab, and you're like, what if we, well, let's just duplicate it, and we'll switch it all to D6 and see what it looks like. But let's duplicate it and switch it all over to percentages and, you know, make all the bonuses scalable instead and see what it feels like. And if you were trying to do that same thing with code and Unity, it would you'd get all bogged down, right? You'd have all this time you'd be spending... Uh, fighting with the code or trying to get it wired back up. But Excel, you're just like copy, paste, drag, you know, numbers in different directions and it fills it in. You can really look at it. So system design, we tend to do a lot of simulation up front in Excel. And then on level design, we do a lot of rough cutting. So that's a technique you can see a lot on like game dev blogs and people that do level design. But it's where you make a level with, with no decorations. You never show it to users. It's just like all the walls are gray, the floor is gray. The bad guys are pine trees, uh, you know, but you work out the gameplay loop. If it's a shooter, you know, you can shoot the pine trees. And if you don't, if you're the designer and you're just trying to figure out, like, does this level flow? The guys don't have to look right. Your gun can be, you know, a, a red laser, whatever. 
but you can figure out how the how that part of the game feels with a very very rough cut and then you can go back and think okay let's let's figure out what what the long-term progression is is like this this rough cut shows us the flow so we'll use that as kind of the example and we'll think about 10 levels that use this pattern or whatever you're trying to do so i think a big part of it is like testing as much as you can up front for as little money as you you know time as you can so testing all your combat math in excel is really cheap compared to writing it all in unity and trying to test it there so do it where it's cheap likewise like don't try and paint the walls and put in all the decorations and the the blades of grass or whatever just make a green green floor gray walls is it fun when you run around and blow stuff up in there heck yeah it is now it's time to put the grass in make it look nice um so i think that's a big part of design for us is assume you're going to throw everything away the first time because you likely are uh so don't you know don't spend a ton of money or time or whatever buying it or building it uh if you don't even know if it's good yet so no i agree yeah. it's very important I know a lot of students on the game dev that TV forums who are like trying so hard to make things beautiful, and it's like, no, no, get the level out there, test it out, show it to all of us, and then we'll tell you, oh, it's cool, awesome. Now we'll go into it and add all the graphics, all all this stuff, and make it into a game. Yep. Now, do you guys think uh, a game developer needs to go to college, or can they learn from other sources of media? Well, I think uh, I think they're. I don't think they need to go to college for game design, I guess. And I say that as a person without a game design degree. So, you know, balance that out in my opinion. I don't have one. So maybe I'm not in a good position to say you don't need one. But I think there's a credible number of multidiscipline opportunities in the game development industry. If you are, if I was a student starting out thinking, hey, I would like to ultimately get into game design, there's a ton of things I could study to make myself relevant to a game studio that was looking to expand and not all of them are about games or even game development um, just a good engineering background can be very valuable or a good design a good you know a good amount of uh training in architecture or videography like you're learning a ton of things about uh the some of the disciplines that game design depends on level design depends heavily on architectural techniques and spatial design and uh, geometry uh, all play into how a level designer uh, puts a level together. So I think there's a huge amount to be gained from exploring formal training in a lot of different things. Um, I think I think there's some challenges with people who are uh, going to uh, get a game design degree and expect to start in the job title that their d degree matches, right? Like I go to get a game design degree and I expect to be a game designer at my first job. That may not be realistic because of the way the industry works. Um, titles like that are often earned at studios. So, you know, maybe you have a degree in game design, but you're going to end up as you know, maybe you'd be a better chance of success if you started as a game writer or you started as someone doing level design. Maybe your degree is in game design, but you're, you start as a level designer or a 
a tester or a narrative writer or something and work your way up to game design. So I think there's a lot of value in it, um, but I don't think it's required. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with internet nowadays, there's so many resources. It's it's more about self-discipline. And can you make yourself study all the stuff that needs that's necessary? If not, then maybe going to college is good for you. It all depends on who you are. That's totally true. That's totally true. If you could get all the YouTube tutorials into your brain all at once in a reasonable amount of time, you would have, you know, college degrees <laughs> worth of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key is to actually learn from them. I, you know, and I've done it myself many times. I'll try to be watching a YouTube tutorial on some engine feature, and I'll get distracted, and then you know, I'm mm-hmm. two hours into the tutorial, and I'm like, I haven't heard anything this guy's saying. Like. Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's always like I think college and classes and stuff give you that they give you this direction, this focus that can be really good, uh, make you accountable. Um, Andrew and I do a thing where we kind of declare to each other, like, here's what I'm working on. Like, I'm going to learn lighting. I'm going to learn the, you know, this lighting engine in Lighten and in a week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff about Enlightening. You know, that can be a way to have, you know, find a partner. Maybe they're in your company. Maybe they're just someone on a forum. But having a buddy, you know, it's like a, a person you meet to go to the gym, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I would never get up at 4 a.m. to go to the gym. But if there's somebody there waiting for me, oh, man, I'm not going to miss. Like, I can't shame myself. You know, I'm not going to get that text like at 4.15, like, hey, man, are you coming? Like, I'm waiting for you. So that's something that I think you can use to, to as a motivational tool is find somebody who else is in game design and, you know, make make bold statements to them. Like, hey, in two weeks, I'm going to tell you all about, uh, you know, blueprints and on in Unreal Engine. I'm going to study those. I'm going to watch some tutorials and, you know, and they'll say, hey, that's awesome. Like, I've wanted to hear about those for a while. Like. I can't wait, you know, can't wait to hear what you've learned. And that can really help, like, make sure that you're, you know, you've committed yourself to somebody else, for, for me at least. And everybody has to find their own motivational tools, what works for them. But that's one that I think a, that a lot of people can use. I think going on with that, what tips would you give to someone just starting out in game development? Well, I think one important one, it's come up a few times that like we built our own engine when we first released our very first game and the engine landscape has changed so much and has become the walls have all come down. So I would say, I mean, I don't know if anyone even thinks about building our own engine anymore, but don't do it. It was definitely a mistake. It slowed us down for a long time. We invested so much in, in to something someone else had already done way better than we we did which I think is another that kind of segues into a good tip, which is to be aware of your own strengths and what you're capable of and look for help when you're going to run up against a wall and don't, and really don't feel like you have to make everything yourself. Like there's so much stuff out there. Um, there's so many little assets and things you can buy and people, libraries, people have written and published on GitHub there's tons to learn and you know we're all standing on the shoulders of giants so i would say one thing i'd say don't try to do it all yourself even if you're an indie and you kind of have to because of budgets look for art you know i I got to a point i did a lot of um i've done a lot of the art for the early games and i did star Trek has thousands of icons in it like character ability icons 
And I used to just hand draw every single one of them. And I finally got to a point where I realized that I could buy cheap icon packs and then photo bash them with styles and modify their minds. So I could modify them anyone want, hack this one up, combine it with that one and make something new out of it. So, you know, it, it's like $5 for a hundred little flat icons. And I don't use any, you know, barely use most of them, but piece of this one, a piece of that. Oh, I really like that. How they have the flame at the end of that one. I'll take it and put it on a flaming skull, you know, but it's a, it's something I didn't do for years because I felt like I should just do all that stuff. And I burnt so many hours making hand drawing all these crazy little design elements that somebody else had already done really nicely. So I think there's all sorts of things like that that you can look for ways to get help from people who've gone before. And, and if it's not a direct asset or something, knowledge. I mean, I think we can see Corey on Twitter all the time helping game developers and there's tons of communities and places you can go plug into if you're stuck somewhere you can get somebody to help you so that would be my tip that's a lot of tips but now it's a, it's a recurring theme that we think we hear a lot of yeah yeah use outside assets and uh don't try to do it all yourself now for someone who's you know struggling with learning let's say like c plus plus or r or stuff like that what would you tell them to keep going if they feel like giving up I think look for signs of incremental improvement. Um, you know, everything is a process and learning C++ or learning art, you're not going to wake up one day and be like, ah, finally no C++. You know, I've been doing C++ for almost 20 years and I still am learning stuff about it all the time. Um, and there's people who are way ahead of me and way behind me and there's people all across the spectrum um, that know more or less, you know, but what you should be, I think what people should try and focus on is the, is recognizing the small improvements. Like, what am I doing better than I did last week? What am I doing better than I did last month? What am I doing better than I did last year? And focusing on those and claiming those small victories. Um, I think trying to like win big, go for the big home runs every time is kind of self-defeating because it's about little improvements. It's about one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And eventually, you know, you've run the whole marathon, but you can't think about the marathon the whole time. You have to think about the next step and the next step and the next step. Um, and I think people who worry too much about how far they've come can, can you can trip yourself up, right? You can drag yourself down and make yourself doubt that you're making any progress if you're always looking for big progress. And I think my tip, my suggestion would be be happy with your little wins and focus on what you're doing better today than you were doing last week and turn that into something better next month and something better the month after that. No, I agree. And I do think that we're going to have to run here pretty soon. Oh, no, I was just about to end it, too. Okay. Perfect okay. timing. Yep. Perfect. So, yeah, so, so usually at the end, we in all our uh, lectures that GameDev.TV does, they give a challenge. So I want you guys come up with a challenge. It could be anything. It could even be like, go follow us on Twitter to all the GameDev.TV students. I would say, you know, talk to someone who's playing something you made. That would be my challenge to everybody who's thinking, hey, I want to be a game developer or, hey, I'm trying to get better at being a game developer. Find someone that's played or is playing something you made and just have a talk with them about what they like and what they don't like. You know, sometimes feedback is not always fun and it can be a little uncomfortable, but 
that is just such a core piece of of being able to get better. It's those little those little lessons that you learn from players. So my challenge would be find somebody playing something you made and and have a chat with them. Now, um, it was great having you guys on. We want to hand the mic to you if you want to do a shout out, promotion, anything, and go from there. Yeah, you know, we're uh, I think top of mind for us right now is the upcoming Kickstarter for our next game. We're prepping and. Uh, getting the previews and teasers out there for Cyber Knights Flashpoint. It is coming to Kickstarter in February of 2020, the Tracy Brothers Games. It's our third Kickstarter project, and we're really looking forward to it. We're looking to gather uh, together both backers, but people who want Thank you very much for having us on. Wow, thank, thank you, you for coming much. on, guys. It was a great Appreciate call. it, guys. Yeah. Awesome. Great call. Yeah. Right, I'll be cheers. definitely checking out that Kickstarter when yeah, it comes yeah. out. All right. Yeah, and uh, at some point, if you want, we can come back on, you know, maybe after we've done the Kickstarter or whatever, and we can talk a little bit about crowdfunding or uh, something something else if you want another topic. Sure. So, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. definitely will jump around like February and we'll, we'll get it started. Okay. Yeah, Thanks again, sure. guys. Cool. Thank you. All right, cheers. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all GameDev.TV courses at courses.gamedev.tv slash courses or in the show notes with a 10% discount. Get started with your game development journey today.